Book Three, Chapter Five of Toussaint L'Ouverture, A Biography and Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Toussaint L'Ouverture, A Biography and Autobiography by John Relly Baird. Book Three, Chapter Five. Toussaint L'Ouverture, a prisoner in the Jura Mountains, appeals in vain to the First Consul, who brings about his death by starvation. Outline of his career and character While the cause of independence, forced at length on the aspirations of the natives of Haiti, was advancing with rapid strides amid all the tumult of arms and all the confusion of despotic cruelties, Toussaint L'Ouverture, pined away and died in the dark, damp, cold prison of Jeu. The castle of Jeu stands on a rock. On one side, the river Doube flows at its base. On the other, the road of Besançon, leading into Switzerland, gives the stronghold the command of the communications between that country and France. The Chateau de Jeu, built by the Romans for their convenience in marching into Gaul, extended in the middle ages by the lords of jeu purchased by louis the eleventh king of france became under louis the fourteenth a state prison there mirabeau suffered incarceration in virtue of a lettre de cachet toussaint l'ouverture carried with him into his dungeon the conviction that he was to undergo a trial in this conviction he sustained his soul he felt confident of a triumph. His enemies, he knew, were numerous and powerful. The consul, he suspected, feared as much as hated him. Yet what was his crime? Had not his authority emanated from the supreme power in France? By that power his position and his acts had been sanctioned. And if even he had offered resistance to the expedition, that opposition had been covered by an act of indemnity, proclaimed by Leclerc. If solemn asseverations meant anything, if reiterated oaths retained their validity, he could stand before any tribunal in full confidence of an honorable acquittal. But the first consul was far from intending to give his prisoner the advantages of a trial. A trial was a public appeal to the great principles of law and right. In such an issue, Bonaparte knew very well who would be the loser there was another and for his purpose a safer way toussaint was advanced in years he had been accustomed to active pursuits he was an african and had lived only in tropical regions his days therefore could be only few and their number would be much abridged by confinement in a foul prison under a chilling climate could he hold out through the coming winter if he survived too long, why, other prisoners had passed away secretly. Power has its secret strings and its swift remedies. By a series of cunningly devised and coolly executed measures, Toussaint L'Ouverture was, ere many months, brought to his grave. All communication with the outer world was forbidden him. He received no news of his wife and family. He passed his days alone with his servant, 
the presence of that faithful domestic was a support to him. That solace was taken away, and Toussaint was left alone. Yet was he not alone, for God was with him. In prayer his soul rose hourly to his Maker, and he received constantly new effusions of comfort and strength. Religious thoughts and observances carried his mind back to the country for which he had sacrificed everything. There, in imagination, he again saw the chapel where he and his family were wont to worship, and while the hymns of praise went up from its neatly formed roof, he was drawn into sympathy with the worshippers, and, with a moved heart and liquid voice, he joined his thanksgiving with theirs. Day by day, and often hours together, was he on his knees, seeking aid and finding support at the footstool of the heavenly grace, where never mortal knelt in vain. But time passed on, and there were no signs of the expected trial. Hope sustained against hope began at last to fail. What? Was he then a prisoner for life? If so, his sufferings, if severe, would not be long. Already he felt the chills of the nights of autumn. There alone, in that cold, dreary dungeon, no fire, little clothes, no companion, those long, pinching nights. And then the winds began to blow hollow and loud, as if they announced a worse time coming. How soon? How long? The winter must be at hand. His captivity may extend through its whole course, but... Can it endure? Can life stretch out till the genial breath of spring return? One day, in the midst of Toussaint's gloomy solitude, a visitor was announced. A visitor? What if it were his son Isaac, or, if not he, perhaps an officer of justice, to announce the coming trial? No, it was Caffarelli, aide-de-camp to the first consul. Oh, then, here is an order for liberation. The prison doors will fly open, and I shall once more see my wife and children. Alas, poor heart, no. The man comes from one whose soul is meaner than his own. Bonaparte thinks it a pity the treasures he fancies you have buried should be lost, and though he does not intend to give you your freedom as the price of the disclosure, yet he sends his aide-de-camp to trick you into some kind of confession on the point, which he may turn to account, and in the result of which, if it is enough, he may find some compensation for the millions he has lavished in San Domingo in making you his captive. Toussaint, great in misfortune, gave for his reply, I have lost something very different from money. Yes, Thou hadst lost the liberty thou didst once enjoy, and peradventure, in a moment of sorrow, thou hadst lost the sacred cause in which thou hadst put thy soul. But mark this consul's mean spirit. He had his victim there cooped up only too safely in that humid and infected prison. Still, he was unsatisfied. Possibly the prisoner had money. If so, why, its hiding-place must be ascertained, ere his lips are sealed in the silence of death. Go then, Caffarelli, get the secret out of the old negro, and then he may be allowed to die. 
Toussaint would not resign himself to his fate without an effort. There was only one tribunal, and that tribunal was a perjured one. Yet an appeal might have some effect. The following letter was therefore written. In the dungeon of Fort Jeux, this thirty fructidor, anno eleven, seventeenth September, eighteen o two. General and First Consul, the respect and the submission which I could wish forever graven on my heart, here words are wanting as if obliterated by tears. If I have sinned in doing my duty, it is contrary to my intentions. If I was wrong in forming the Constitution, it was through my great desire to do good. It was through having employed too much zeal, too much self-love, thinking I was pleasing the government under which I was. If the formalities which I ought to have observed were neglected, it was through inattention. I have had the misfortune to incur your wrath, but as to fidelity and probity, I am strong in my conscience, and I dare affirm that among all the servants of the state, no one is more honest than myself. I was one of your soldiers, and the first servant of the Republic in San Domingo, but now I am wretched, ruined, dishonored, a victim of my own services. Let your sensibility be moved at my position. You are too great in feeling and too just not to pronounce a judgment as to my destiny. I charge General Caffarelli, your aide-de-camp, to put my report into your hands. I beg you to take it into your best consideration. His honor, his frankness, have forced me to open my heart to him. Salutation and respect. Toussaint L'Ouverture Days passed away, and no notice was taken of this epistle. The report of which it speaks was either suppressed or neglected. Dead to pity, Bonaparte watched for the consummation of the villainy he had designed. It was customary to allow the commander of the prison five francs, about four shillings, a day for the subsistence of each prisoner. The first consul wrote that three were sufficient for a revolter, more than sufficient for thy base purpose. Didst thou remember those words when thou didst beat thyself against the bars of thy own cage in the island of St. Helena, complaining daily of a table which, compared with thy allowance to the first of the blacks, was a banquet of delicacies to a dinner of herbs? While the process of gradual starvation was going forward, its unconscious victim, outraged by his sufferings, wrote this spirited epistle to his persecutor. In the dungeon of Fort Jeu, this seven Vendemiaire, anno eleven, twenty-ninth September, eighteen o two. General and First Consul, I beg you, in the name of God, in the name of humanity, to cast a favorable eye on my appeal, on my position, and my family. Direct your great genius to my conduct, to the manner in which I have served my country, to all the dangers I have run in discharging my duty. I have served my country with fidelity and probity. I have served it with zeal and courage. I have been devoted to the government under which I was. I have sacrificed my blood and a part of what I possessed to serve my country, 
and in spite of my efforts all my labors have been in vain you will permit me first consul to say to you with all the respect and submission which i owe you that the government has been completely deceived in regard to toussaint l'ouverture in regard to one of its most zealous and courageous servants in san domingo i labored long to acquire honor and glory from the government and to gain the esteem of my fellow-citizens and i am now for my reward crowned with thorns and the most marked ingratitude i do not deny the faults i may have committed and for which i beg your pardon but those faults do not deserve the fourth of the punishment i have received nor the treatment i have undergone first consul it is a misfortune for me that i am not known to you if you had thoroughly known me while i was at son domingo you would have done me more justice my heart is good i am not learned i am ignorant but my father who is now blind showed me the road of virtue and honor and i am very strong in my conscience in that matter and if i had not been devoted to the government i should not have been here that is a truth i am wretched miserable a victim of all my services all my life i have been in active service and since the revolution of the tenth of august seventeen ninety i have constantly been in the service of my country now i am a prisoner with no power to do anything sunk in grief my health is impaired i have asked you for my freedom that i may labor that i may gain my subsistence and support my unhappy family i call on your greatness on your genius to pronounce a judgment on my destiny let your heart be softened and touched by my position and my misfortunes i salute you with profound respect signed toussaint l'ouverture footnote gauguineau toussaint's father died in eighteen o four having completely lost his sight he is said to have left the world uttering curses against white men End of footnote. alas the first consul has pronounced judgment and the consequent sentence the prisoner is even now undergoing that sentence is slow death and then as you toussaint shake with the cold of the northern blast or sink overcome with sorrow on the moist foul floor of your cell or refuse with loathing the unsavory food and as your limbs part with their strength and your heart flutters in debility and your blood becomes thin and poor and as you look to the winter's frost snow hail and storm with a vague distress and dismal forebodings in each step of the process of slow death the consul's verdict goes into execution and another day or another week is taken from the brief number that remain to you yet well and noble is it that under the depression of your unhappy condition while your heart sinks with the sinking of your ill-supported frame it is well and noble that you descend to no mean flatteries that you descend to no unworthy supplications and that retaining your own high manly spirit you protest your innocence proclaim your services and charge your enemies with ingratitude toussaint l'ouverture then began to compose with his own hand a document in which he entered into a systematic defence of his conduct 
This document, the orthography of which is said to have been defective, was couched in correct and sometimes eloquent terms. By permission of the governor of the castle, it was copied by Marshal Besse, then one of his prisoners, and on the 2nd of October it was transmitted to the First Consul. The document contained the following passages. General Leclerc employed toward me means which have never been employed toward the greatest enemies. Doubtless I owe that contempt to my color. But has that color prevented me from serving my country with zeal and fidelity? Does the color of my body injure my honor or my courage? Suppose I was criminal, and that the general-in-chief had orders to arrest me. Was it needful to employ a hundred carbineers to arrest my wife and children, to tear them from their residence without respect and without regard for their rank, their sex, without humanity and without charity? Was it necessary to fire on my plantations and on my family, to ransack and pillage my property? No. My wife, my children, my household were under no responsibility have no account to render to government. General Leclerc had not even the right to arrest them. Was that officer afraid of a rival? I compare him to the Roman Senate, that pursued Hannibal even into his retirement. I request that he and I appear before a tribunal, and that the government bring forward the whole of my correspondence with him. By that means my innocence and all I have done for the Republic will be seen. First Consul, father of all French soldiers, upright judge, defender of the innocent, pronounce a decision as to my destiny. My wound is deep. Apply a remedy to it. You are the physician. I rely entirely on your wisdom and skill. These appeals to the justice, honor, and humanity of the First Consul proved abortive. Bonaparte's mind was made up. His ear, therefore, was closed. Toussaint spoke to a foregone conclusion. His words were encountered by a fixed determination. That determination was so fixed and so well known that no one dared to speak in favor of the oppressed and doomed hero. Fear of the supreme magistrate occupied all minds around him and gave to his will the force of law. That precipitate and iron mind found the process of slow murder too slow. Solitude, cold, and short fare were tardy in their operation. Their natural tardiness was not abated by the presence with the captive of his faithful servant. Mars Placier was therefore taken away by an express order of the government. In parting from him, Toussaint L'Ouverture said, Carry my last farewell to my wife, my children, and my niece. Would I could console thee under this cruel separation. Be assured of my friendship, and of the remembrance which I shall always preserve of thy services and of thy devotedness. Toussaint, thou art still the same, still self-forgetful, still mindful of thy wife and family. The disinterested benevolence which made thee a patriot and which the prospect of supreme power could not bribe into subjection, remains unchilled by the cold of the Jura Mountains, and unsuppressed by bodily weakness, and unperverted by ingratitude and perfidy. 
Mars Placir was loaded with chains and sent to Nantes, where he was put in prison. But unwelcome truths make their way through bars and walls. Therefore was the good servant specially guarded and watched, lest, before his master's demise, he should disclose facts that might prove troublesome, or set in motion instruments that might traverse the designs of the tyrant. The progress made in Haiti by the assertions of the national independence kept Bonaparte in a constant state of solicitude. He could not conceal from himself that the escape of Toussaint from his dungeon was a possible event. He was well aware that his reappearance in San Domingo would make the reduction of the inhabitants impossible. Nay, the mere knowledge of his being still alive, while it encouraged the hope of his yet taking the lead of the soldiers of independence, served to keep up the courage of the insurgents, and to augment the difficulties of Rochambeau. His death, therefore, seemed to Bonaparte urgently necessary. Affairs were hurrying to a crisis in the West Indies. A blow must be struck. The trunk of the insurrection, the first consul had it in his power to pluck up and destroy, at least so he thought. Therefore the order went forth. Cut it down, root it up. The manner was worthy of the deed. The governor of the castle was chosen for the perpetration of the crime. Scarcely was he a man for the work. He had scruples of conscience. But nothing short of plenary obedience would be accepted. Besides, it was not a question of the dagger or the bowl. All that was wanted was a more decided system of privation, and that system he scarcely needed to work actively. When a prisoner is kept in close confinement and must be got rid of, you have only to reduce his means of subsistence until death ensues as a matter of course. And if the process is too slow, it may be accelerated by a little well-timed neglect. To an attenuated and famished frame the want of nutrition for a few days brings certain death. Let the ordinary pittance of supply then be forgotten, and your end is gained. And who shall dare to call an act of oblivion by the foul and offensive name of murder? The governor twice took a journey to Neufchatel in Switzerland. The first time he entrusted the keys of Toussaint's cell to Captain Colomier, whom he appointed to fill his place in his absence. Colomier visited the noble prisoner, who spoke to him modestly of his own glory, but with indignation of the design imputed to him of having wished to deliver San Domingo up to the English. His emaciated and feeble hands were engaged in writing a paper intended to disprove that groundless charge. The officer found Toussaint in a state of almost absolute privation. A little meal was his only food, and that he had to prepare himself in a small earthen jug. But Colomier had a heart. He pitied the destitution of a man who had had at his command the opulence of San Domingo. His humanity made him unfit for his office, and ascertaining that the captive accounted the want of coffee among his chief privations, he ventured at his own risk to furnish a small supply. When the governor returned, he found that Toussaint L'Ouverture was still alive. In a short time he took a second journey to the same town, and for the same purpose and as he suspected that Colomier's good nature had interfered with his duty, 
he said to him, on leaving, with a disquieted countenance, I entrust to you the guardianship of the castle, but this time I do not give you the keys of the dungeons. The prisoners have no need of anything. The governor returned on the fourth day. Toussaint was no more. He ascertained the fact. Yes, there he is, dead. No doubt whatever, dead and cold. He had died of inanition, and see, if you have courage to look on so horrible a sight, the rats have gnawed his feet. The work is done, the crime is perpetrated. Bonaparte's will is law, his word is death. But murder is a word of evil sound. The world, with all its depravity, has a moral feeling, and that moral feeling it is impolitic to outrage. A veil must be thrown over the assassination. Toussaint is dead. How came he by his death? The governor, on learning that his captive had breathed his last, carried some provisions into his dungeon. Who now can say that Toussaint had been starved to death? He died in the midst of abundance. This was the governor's own plea, but he deprived that plea of its effect by his eagerness to obtrude and make the most of it, and he betrayed his guilt by his looks and manner. Yes, he was distressed at Toussaint's sudden departure. He bewailed the event. But hypocrisy ever overacts its part. Besides, the governor was not thoroughly depraved, and that which he would have men regard as the sadness of a virtuous heart in mourning, they saw to be the ragings of a conscience smitten with a sense of guilt. His cheeks put on a livid paleness. His steps were hasty and uncertain. His eyes were wild. Yes, here is a man deeply suffering under the stings of remorse. His nervous and agitated efforts to make it clear, very clear beyond a question, that Toussaint has died of a natural cause, demonstrate that he knows more than he dares reveal, and has contracted a guilt that he would fain conceal even from his own eyes. But the keys of the dungeon were in his possession, and the words, the prisoners want nothing, and the food recently carried thither, these facts, known to our authority, and known to Captain Colomier, and known to other inmates of the castle, declare that murder has been committed. Yes, now we see why Mars Placier has been sent away, and now we see why this remote, solitary, wild, and freezing prison has been chosen, and now we see why Toussaint L'Ouverture was entrapped. The series of crimes is consummated. Footnote. See particularly Maitre's Histoire de l'Expedition des Francois à Saint-Dominique, page 201, sequential. End of footnote. Still, the question returns, what will be the opinion of the world? Medical men were called in. The head was opened. The brain was scrutinized. It is apoplexy, the authorities said and apoplexy was set down in the formal report made as to the cause of Toussaint's death. Possibly so, but what produced the apoplexy? Ask Captain Colomier. Ask the mayor of the district. 
they were both required to state that death had taken place by some cause different from hunger, and they both refused. Yes, what was the opinion of the world? The world believed and declared that there had been foul play. That belief gained prevalence in San Domingo, and added fuel to the flames of wrath which, without this new brand, burned with intensest fierceness, consuming the French army, and making their longer stay in the island an impossibility. Thus, in the beginning of April, in the year 1803, died Toussaint Louverture. A grandson of an African king, he passed the greater number of his days in slavery, and rose to be a soldier, a general, a governor. He possessed a rare genius, the efficiency of which was augmented by an unusual power of self-concealment. His life lay in thought and in action rather than in words. Self-contained, he was also self-sufficing. Though he disdained not the advice of others, he was in the main his own counsel board. With an intense concentration of vitality in his own soul, he threw into his outer life a power and an energy which armed one man with the power of thousands, and made him great alike in the command of others and in the command of himself. He was created for government by the hand of nature. That strength of soul and self-reliance which made him fit to rule also gave him subjects for his sway. Hence it was that he could not remain in the herd of his fellow slaves. Rise he must, and rise he did, first to humble offices, then to the command of a regiment, and then to the command of the armies of San Domingo. To the qualities which make an illustrious general and statesman, there were added in Toussaint's soul the milder virtues that formed the strength and the ornament of domestic life. Great as he was in the field and in the cabinet, scarcely less great and more estimable was he as a husband and a father. There his excellences shone without a shade. The sacrifice of his sons to the duty which he owed to his country only illustrates the intensity of a patriotism which could extort so precious a possession from a father's hands. But he had learned his duty from the lips of one who taught men to make the love of children and parents subordinate to the love of himself, and assured that he had in some special manner been called and sent to set the captive free, he, in a native benevolence of character which the gospel enriched, strengthened and directed, concentrated all the fine endowments of his soul on the great work of Negro emancipation in the island of his birth. His mind appeared in his countenance and his manner, yet only as if under a veil. His looks were noble and dignified rather than refined. His eyes, darting fire, told of the burning elements of his soul. Though little aided by what is called education, he, in the potency of his mind, bent and molded language to his thoughts, and ruled the minds of others by an eloquence which was no less concise than simple, manly, and full of imagery. As with other men of ardent genius, he fused ideas into proverbs and put into circulation sayings that are reported to be still current in his native land. Footnote. All the likenesses of Toussaint L'Ouverture which I have seen, except one, 
have the disadvantage of being profiles. End of footnote. But, after all, he was greater indeed than he was in word. Vast was the influence which he acquired by the mere force of his silent example. His very name became a tower of strength to his friends and a terror to his foes. Hence his presence was so impressive that none approached him without fear, nor left him without emotion. If the world has reason to thank God for great men, with special gratitude should we acknowledge the divine goodness in raising up Toussaint L'Ouverture. Among the privileged races of the earth, the role of patriots, legislators, and heroes is long and well filled. As yet, there is but one Toussaint L'Ouverture. Yet how many of the highest qualities of our nature did that one unite in himself? But his best claim to our respect and admiration consists in the entire devotion of his varied and lofty powers to the redemption of his color from degrading bondage, and its elevation into the full stature of perfect manhood. I do not intend to paint the Haitian patriot as a perfect man. Moral perfection once appeared on earth. It is not likely to have appeared a second time among the slaves of Haiti. Toussaint has been accused of harshness and cruelty. I am not prepared to affirm that the charges are without foundation, but it is equally true that his enemies have done their utmost to point out stains in his character. Unfortunately, the means for a thorough investigation are wholly wanting. It has also been said that he was an adept at dissimulation, but secrecy in his circumstances was both needful and virtuous, and if the study of secrecy on his part was undue, let the failing be set down against him at its full value. It has even been intimated that when in power he yielded to the fascinations of the accomplished Creole women of the Cape, but the intimation, faint and indirect as it is, rests on no solid grounds. In truth, it was impossible that a man of the origin and aims of Toussaint L'Ouverture should have escaped the shafts of calumny, and, after all due abatements are made, enough of excellence remains to command our admiration and win our esteem. While, however, the world has seen but one Toussaint L'Ouverture, this history sets forth many black men who were possessed of great faculties and accomplished great deeds. And though the instance of their chief only shows what an elevation men with a black skin may possibly attain, there are in the general tenor of this narrative proofs very numerous and irrefragable that, in the ordinary powers and virtues which form the texture and ornament of civilized life, an African origin and Negro blood involve no essential disqualification. Very clear, certainly, has it appeared that whether in its rights, its wrongs, its penalties, or its rewards, justice, the ever-living daughter of the eternal God and the ever-present and ever-active administratrix of divine providence, knows nothing whatever of the distinctions, the prejudices, the dislikes, or the preferences of color. An injury done to a European ceases not to be an injury when the sufferer is an African. Nor are breakers of God's laws punished with less severity within the tropics than they are in the temperate zones. 
slavery which is the essence and the concentration of injustice slavery which from its foundation to its top stone is one huge and frightful accumulation of wrongs of wrongs the hugest and the direst slavery which is the worst form of treachery to man and treason against god entails vengeance the most terrible the most awful vengeance not less sure than dreadful alas that in the scourge the innocent should suffer as well as the guilty the thought would sink the mind in grief were it not attended by the conviction that the hour cometh when the righteous shall shine as stars in the firmament forever and ever the family of toussaint l'ouverture received the news of his death with the deepest grief they wept and wailed and refused to be comforted because he was not under a pretense that they contemplated escape those innocent persons were transferred from bayonne to agen where they found friends worthy of themselves when saint jean l'ouverture heard of his father's death he declared that he should not long survive him the saying was too true the effects of the climate on a naturally weak constitution brought him to the tomb ere he had quitted the period of youth his death almost caused the death of his female cousin from whom he received in his sickness the most tender and vigilant cares shortly after the family succeeded in obtaining the favor that placida l'ouverture should quit his place of detention and reside with them at agen madame toussaint l'ouverture who was beloved and revered alike by her husband and her children survived that husband and her youngest son for several years without being able to overcome the grief which their loss occasioned and which was so deep and constant as to undermine her faculties she died in eighteen sixteen in the arms of her sons placida and isaac l'ouverture the history of l'ouverture placed by the side of the history of bonaparte presents a number of striking parallels both born in a humble position they raised themselves to the height of power by the force of their genius and the intense energy of their character both gained renown in legislation and government as well as in war both fell the moment they had obtained supreme authority both were betrayed by pretended friends and delivered into the hands of embittered foes both were severed from their families both finished their lives on a barren rock the parallels have their contrasts toussaint l'ouverture fought for liberty bonaparte fought for himself toussaint l'ouverture gained fame and power by leading an oppressed and injured race to the successful vindication of their rights bonaparte made himself a name and acquired a sceptre by supplanting liberty and destroying nationalities in order to substitute his own illegitimate despotism the fall of toussaint l'ouverture was a voluntary retirement from power accompanied by a voluntary renunciation of authority under circumstances which seemed to guarantee that freedom the attainment of which had been the sole object of his efforts the fall of bonaparte was the forced abdication of a throne which was regarded as a european nuisance and descent from which was a virtual acknowledgment that he had utterly failed in the purposes of his life in the treachery which they underwent on one side toussaint l'ouverture was the victim and bonaparte the seducer 
and on the other side the former suffered from those who had been his enemies, the latter from those who in profession were his constant friends, and in the rupture of their domestic ties Bonaparte was the injurer, Toussaint L'Ouverture the injured. Nor is it easy to bring one's mind to the conclusion that retribution was wholly absent in the facts to which allusion has just been made. The punishment is too like the crime to be regarded as accidental. Toussaint's domestic bereavement was requited by Bonaparte's domestic sorrows. The drear solitude of the castle of Jeux was experienced over again at saint Helena by him who inflicted the penalty. Strange to say, it was a friend of the Negroes, namely Admiral Maitland, that conducted the Corsican to his prison, and as if to make the correspondence the more complete, and the retribution the more potent, by an exchange of extreme localities, the man of the temperate regions was transferred to the tropics, to atone for his crime in transferring the man of the tropics to the killing frosts of the temperate regions. Resembling each other in several points of their calamities and pains, the two differed in that which is the dividing line between the happy and the wretched. For while with Bonaparte God was a name, with Toussaint L'Ouverture God was at once the sole reality and the sovereign good. End of Book 3 Chapter 5 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista